to Field Notes on Climate Change, the podcast from the front lines of Arctic research. I'm Emma Brisbane, and this podcast is produced in partnership with the Climate Impacts Research Centre and is based at the Arbisco Scientific Research Station in northern Sweden. In this episode, I'm heading back up the slopes of Arbisco's Mount Nula with Lottie Gibbons and Ryan Richardson. We're armed with some large nets and an array of pots and measuring cages because today we're going to be spending the day searching for Arctic bumblebees. It's no secret that bee species are in global decline. Many are now classified as endangered and dozens across Europe are facing a very real threat of extinction. As important pollinators, bees play a really vital role in the health and functioning of an ecosystem. They keep pollen moving around, they fertilise plants as they forage, and they keep environments biodiverse and productive. As bumblebees and plants rely heavily on each other for food and reproduction, Lottie and Ryan are spending three months this summer surveying bumblebee communities up here in the Arctic. They hope to better understand these bee and plant relationships so they can predict how they might be impacted by a changing climate in the future. But before I give the whole game away, let's meet them both. Hello, I'm Lottie and I'm doing my Masters in Ecology, Evolution and Conservation at Imperial College London. I'm Ryan and I just graduated from Imperial College London and the Natural History Museum in MSc Taxonomy and Biodiversity. And before we head into the field tomorrow, I've got one quick question for you. Because climate change research is so broad and we can only study one little part of each, um, what does climate research actually look like for you two? So for us, climate change research is looking at important pollinators like the bumblebees and the effects of climate change on them. So basically, day to day, that means climbing up the mountain, catching bumblebees, um, identifying them, identifying the plants that they're foraging on. And then from that, we can get an idea of how the plants and bumblebees are interacting and how climate change may be affecting that. Great. Well, I think that's time for us to head outside and continue our chats on the slopes of the mountain. So, Lottie, Ryan, we are heading out today to catch bumblebees. Why are we interested in looking at bee communities in the Arctic and what are we going to be doing today? So we're looking at bumblebee communities um, across Nolia, which is a mountain here in Abisko. Um, Essentially, we're hoping to look at the plant pollinator networks, which is um, the different bumblebee species we have here in Abisko forage on the different plants. So as we're going up the mountain, so up the elevation gradient, we are hoping to see different bumblebee species um, in different temperatures and in different vegetation zones across the mountain um, and also foraging on different plants. And that means so with climate change, obviously with an increase in temperature, it can affect things like um, when different plants come out or when the different bumblebees come out. And because they're so reliant on each other, um, if there's different changes in timings, then they can be called a, a phenology mismatch. So plants are coming out a lot earlier than the bumblebees or vice versa. Um, but we don't really know with the Arctic what is happening in a, um, with climate change. So most of the studies have been in temperate and tropical climates. Um, but we're hoping that if we look at the network interactions, the ideal outcome would be that they're actually really stable. And even if there's a temperature changes, um, that the, the plants and pollinators will remain um, in sync so they won't be that affected, but potentially um, we will see an effect of climate change here as well. And this is the yeah. second year that you've been gathering data yeah. here? Yeah. yeah, so there was two students last year who 
did the same sort of survey as us, gathered similar data. So this is the start of a, hopefully a long-term project. And we hope that, say, in 10 years' time, you can look back to see how the temperatures change and how it's affected this interaction between bees and plants across this across the mountain. Okay, so that's the big picture. That's why we're here. But what does that actually mean for us now? What are we doing today? So today we're starting at the bottom plot. So we've got 13 plots going up the mountain. Each plot we do a 20-minute survey where we walk around in a specific route to try and keep it the same every time. If we see a bumblebee, we quickly pause the stopwatch, run over, catch it with the net. That's the that's the aim. That's the plan. That's the um, plan. <laughs> yeah. Bees don't always cooperate, so... <laughs> Yeah, it can be difficult, but catch the bee, take a picture of the plant that it was foraging on, if it was foraging, ID the plant, put the bee in a in a pot, in a cool bag, start the stopwatch and go going until the 20 minutes is up. And at the end, we've hopefully caught a fair few bees and we will start IDing them, taking photos of each bee, taking a little tarsi clipping, which is like a clipping of its toe, essentially. Cool. Um, we also take a little pollen sample if they've got pollen on them so they have like a pollen sack on their leg and we just knock that off um, take that into a test tube bring it back to the freezer later and then from that we can work out which plants they've been foraging on which is really useful because we can obviously catch them on a specific plant and identify that plant but we can't then know which plants they'd been foraging on earlier or earlier that week but this, the pollen sample enables us to get a big picture of their whole diet. And you're here for the whole summer, for three months, yeah. going up the mountain every couple of days. And there's another team here as well, surveying yeah. the same area, but looking at the plants and the phenology and the changes in development of the plants. So are you working together with them, you're going to use their data as well to have a look at the bees and the timings with the plants? Yes, yeah, so we'll be using the data they collect so they look at um, things like what species are in what plots and the first flowering times and last flowering times so we can use that data to get an idea about where the bumblebees will be. Um, we've already seen certain plants flourish here and all the bumblebees love them like um, at the beginning we started seeing them all on the willows and then all of a sudden it died off and so with the phenology data we can see sort of when the pollen's coming in on these plants and when it's dying off and actually we can track that up the mountain and see how the bumblebees follow the different plants up the mountain brilliant well, yeah. i think it sounds like it's time for us to go and yeah. catch some bees yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is what we do. <laughs> Just slowly wander around the plot. <laughs> B! B! Oh! Do you know where it is? Where it is? Hopefully. Just lift that up and... Right, it's on It's on the oligonosum, so... Great, okay. Have you got the pot? Right, pass the pot over. Okay, so talk me through what you're doing now. We've got it in the net. How do you get it in the pot? So just sort of, I guess, try and slide the pot in the net so it doesn't come out. Put the lid on, twist it round. This bit is difficult. And then slide the lid back under once you've get it round. Try not to let it escape, which has happened a couple Managed of times. <laughs> but, yeah. And, uh, I think it's probably Janellis Queen. There we go. First one of the day. 
Okay, so we've, we've caught our first bee, yep. it's in the yep. pot. Tell me, how do you identify a bee? Is it the colours, the stripes? Yeah, colours, stripes, like the position of the bands. Um, size. size for different ones, but obviously workers and queens are different sizes, so workers based on are a the, lot smaller, yeah. Based on the band's colours mainly, and then size to determine the cast. So you're trusting your observations on this one? Yes. Yeah, for this one, yeah, it's a Bombus genellus, but there's a few others that you pretty much can't tell the difference unless you probably get it under a microscope. So okay. for those, we're taking tarsi clipping, so a little clip of like the end of the hand. It's used for DNA barcoding at a later date for the long-term project. So for like Alpinus polaris bumblebees, which we find at the top of the mountain, they're so similar that you can't identify in the field and you have to take a tarsi clipping to actually ID the individual species. So how do you take a clipping? Uh, <laughs> well, once you've caught the bee, you put them in a little marking recapture cage. Um, it's got a grid at the bottom with holes in. They stick their little legs out and you take a little clipping just from the middle leg because that's the one we found that it doesn't really affect them if you take it from the yeah. middle. Whereas the top and the bottom are used more for gripping and different things like that. So, yeah, and then set them free once you're done. Yeah. And it doesn't damage them in any way because you've recaught ones yeah, that you've already taken. Yeah, we've recaptured um, bees before, yeah. so we know that they don't doesn't Recaptured hurt well. them in any way. And they did sort of like in lab experiments where they clipped tarsies and did like, like a long term study to make sure it didn't affect them because um, we're completely non lethal here, so we're trying to keep the bees, preserve the bees up the mountain. Perfect. <laughs> um, and you just took a picture of the plant that you saw at foraging yeah. on as well. What's the purpose of that? Um, so we were looking at the each species of bumblebee we want to know what they're foraging on and what time they're foraging on that plant and also up the altitudinal climb so often we see so here we've seen it foraging on Uliganosum and say post 74 which is a lot higher near the top we'll see them foraging on maybe like a week later it starts off down here on a certain plant and then later on we'll see slowly that plant flower more and more up the top and we start seeing the bumblebees foraging on them Ah, so the bumblebees will move upslope with the vegetation. That's the theory. Yeah, anyway. some of them yeah. do, I think, yeah. <laughs> that's the aim of the study, to figure out if they do follow yeah, the plants up the mountain. And with climate change, if it affects how quickly plants move up the mountain, how quickly the bumblebees follow. So how many different species of bumblebee do we get up here? Um, so I think we have, we've seen About 15 or 16 now. Yeah. Um, yeah, 15, I think. Yes, so some of them are specialist and some of them are generalist bumblebees. So what does that mean? Specialist is essentially bumblebees that are adapted to certain conditions, so like a certain temperature or certain altitude. So obviously we're working on a mountain. So at the top of the mountain, the altitude's pretty high and it's pretty cold up there. Mm. So you have to have very specialist adaptations to be foraging and flying around up very there well. it's very windy as well yeah so we tend to find the bigger and the fluffier bumblebees at the top so such as bombus um, alpinus polaris is one of the ones we find at the top so we would yeah. consider that to be a specialist bumblebee um, but then ones, the ones we find at the bottom are more generous species, so they're adapted to the more milder climates. Um, they can, they're not just on the mountain, they can go elsewhere as well. Yeah. So they're, they're happier pretty much anywhere. Yeah, we see them at a lot, much larger range. Sort of. You yeah, see they them have a lot. Up, up to the end of the tree line on the mountain and then you see them all over the re research station. When we're not on the mountain, we see them when we go for a, run, a hike or something, we see a lot of them. Yeah. 
but the yeah the bombus alpinus and bombus plurus yeah, are really specialised to sort of that top of the mountain. They're the ones we see when it's really windy. You can like you can't even, your your cap's nearly flying off, <laughs> and then you just see them just sort of flying around like it's nothing. It's fine. And so with climate change, uh, one of the big issues with, with mountains is that the, the top alpine region is shrinking mm-hmm. because everything is warming. Is that a concern then for the specialist species that live up there? Yeah, it is a big concern. We're not actually sure what's happening at the moment. That's one of the reasons we're out looking at it. Um, so we're not sure how climate change will affect the specialist species. But I think the theory is the top of the mountain is shrinking but we're getting more generalist species now that it's warming up climbing up the mountain as well and pushing the specialist species out as well and taking over so um yeah that's one of the things we're looking at and hoping to find more about what's the life cycle of a bee up here you get the queens emerging first in the spring yeah yeah Yeah, so the queens come out sort of beginning of may we're not 100 percent sure like when depends on the weather and then sort of now so the end um, about a month two months later the workers come out and then you have the males after that and then new queens after that and then all the males and the workers and the queens die off and then the new queens hibernate over the winter and start again the following spring. So at the moment we're at the phase where the workers are about to emerge? About to emerge yeah last year they'd already emerged at this point but because the weather's been so bad we've been a bit slower this year so they should be coming out soon if the sun comes out at any point. The queens are definitely in decline so we've not seen as many queens as we did at the beginning so that indicates the workers should appear at some point. After catching those two bees in our first plot uh, we've now got to process them and add them to our data set so Lottie has already ID'd them and taken their photo in the measuring cage Uh, and now Ryan's in front of me poised with some nail scissors and one of the bees is in the bottom of this little pot with a kind of grid at the bottom with some of its legs poking out uh, which I think means he's now ready to take the tarsi clipping. So we've got the leg cut the here, the grid at the bottom. so you, you just get the scissors, it's pretty difficult because it's moved this leg in, so it's, this is a waiting game pretty much, you just wait for them to move their legs out, um, sometimes you try and move them around and a bit. And it has so to be the right leg presumably as well. Yeah, it has to be a certain leg, so the middle, the middle leg, out of their six, one of the middle two. Um, that's it, done. Oh, done. We've got a bee tarsi on the scissor and then put it in a little tube with some ethanol in to preserve it. Put the lid on, pop oh. the lid on. Done. Take that back and it goes in the freezer in the lab. Freezer, yeah. So we've got a pen with white paint on and you're going to be marking this bee so that you know if you've caught it again yeah, before. Yeah, so I'll just put a little white dot on the, on the thorax, so on its back. And from that, we can identify that we've caught it before. And a lot of these bees, we might have just caught one of each. We might recapture one and we can know a bit about the population size and stuff. Right, now that we have recorded everything that we need to on the data sheets uh, and we've marked the bees, all that's left is to let them go. So I think it's time for you to grab a net and give it a go. Brilliant, you're going to have to teach me the proper technique. Yeah, we'll teach you the whipping technique and I'm sure you'll be able to catch a few. Great, I hope so. 
Okay, we're just walking to the next plot now through the forest and the team have given me a net to practice with. So I'm going to keep my eyes open for bees while we're just walking. So we won't record anything that I catch if I manage to catch anything um, because we're not kind of on the transit, we're not in any of the plots, but it'd still be really good practice for me because I definitely don't quite have the same technique that they do. And they've told me that there are two different techniques for when it comes to catching bumblebees, depending on what they're doing. So if you see one flying around or kind of hovering above some nice leafy flowery vegetation, a sweeping whipping motion is what's needed. Kind of what you would expect really from someone wielding a bee net. And if you see them foraging on the ground or on some low-lying vegetation where the sweep wouldn't really catch them, you kind of just have to plonk the net right on top of it. It does look a little bit silly, but it is very effective, so I'm going to have to give that a go. I think it might be a pictorum worker. It's mental because they, as the queens are really small for this. So this is definitely the smallest, yeah, that's the smallest bee I've it's seen tiny. so far, definitely. Okay, I missed recording the beginning of it, but I did just catch my first bee. Yeah. And what were you just saying? It's going to be in your data set, yeah, even though yeah, we're not... Yeah, part of our data set. So it's not on the transect, like the, our actual survey, but it's the first worker of that species we've seen. So we're going to add it to our data set as this date, so today, is the first time we've seen a worker of Bombus protorum. So, yeah, pretty significant bee. Oh, I'm dead chuffed. My first bee catch. Brilliant. Well, that was quite an exciting little detour. Um, wasn't expecting quite so much activity just on the walk between plots. But anyway, now we have arrived at plot two. Um, we're getting ready to get set up and we're about to go. And actually, the sun has just come out from the clouds. So we're feeling optimistic because the team have assured me that this is good bumblebee weather. When the sun's out, they're more likely to be found kind of leisurely foraging on the flowers, uh, which makes them much easier to catch because when it's cold and windy, they're either not around or they're kind of zipping around quite quickly trying to battle the wind. So hopefully, fingers crossed, this should be a good plot. Another bee? Yeah, so it's just on this lingerie in here. Okay. It's literally there. Yeah, there you go. Oh, it's tiny She's again. Tiny, tiny another, worker. another worker. So all the workers have finally, finally come out. out. So we've got this one here, which is caught. Oh, and here another. There's a the pascorum. Oh. <laughs> oh. Have we Did caught I get it? it? Have we caught it? Did we get it? <laughs> Pretty busy plot right now. Wow. Well, this is a total difference to yeah. to plot one. Pretty chaotic, but. Good, good data. Another oh, one. Another well, one. Yeah. Oh, that one's, that one's huge. Oh no! You guys. <laughs> oh, I wish I got that video. That was such a oh, good one. That was a full run and jump at the bee, but you caught it. So <laughs> <laughs> I get the lid out because running out of lids. So although we have 20 minutes to survey each plot and we found four bees in the first two minutes of this plot, um, that's all we found actually. For the next 18 minutes, we just wandered around the plot and there were no bees to be seen, but, but no bother. We've still got four to process. So we're gonna head back to the beginning of the plot where we started the route and we'll sit down and start IDing and tagging them. Uh, and that gives us a little bit of a chance as well to just catch our breath and continue our chats from earlier.
Okay, and a few slightly silly questions, perhaps mm-hmm. from someone who doesn't know bees quite as well as you. How do bees survive the winter? Because it's completely covered in snow up here. So it's only the queens that survive the winter, and they essentially hibernate. So they um, create burrows in old rodent burrows. So they'll mm-hmm. go in holes in the ground and then just hibernate across the winter where all the snow is out and it's freezing cold. And then come spring, once all the snow's melted and the sun's coming out, that's when they'll appear. And what do they do at night? Do they borrow as well? Or does that even make a difference when it's 24-hour daylight over here in the summer? It's hard to know. <laughs> we, um, we've seen bumblebees flying around at like 3am, stuff like that. So I, don't, I think they, they, they're definitely not as, they're not as active at night, but you still see them because it's, like, it's light and the flowers are still... They just, yeah, still doing their still thing. The yeah. pollen's still around. Yeah. yeah. And do you guys find you're able to switch off? So when you're off hiking or just enjoying your days off, are you constantly looking for bees? Yeah, I think we're constantly looking for bees <laughs> yeah. now. It's become a thing where we just, every time we see a bee, it's just like bee, bee everywhere. Yeah. And everyone we speak to now, because they know we're doing this study, constantly tells us about bumblebees. So we, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I don't think you can escape. There are bumblebees everywhere here. Yeah. So yeah, there's Even, no switching yeah. off at the end of the day. Yeah, I was really surprised when I arrived, both by the fact, oh, there's one just over your shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. What's that one? It's a Janellus. Ah, see? Bombus Janellus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're really, really common, like, sort of down here, down lower on the mountain. You see them all over the place. Yeah. So yeah. that's like a more generalist thing, species, ah. I think. We see them a lot around here. We don't really see them so much up no, past the tree line. Bomb. But yeah, that was... So that was one of the things that I was really surprised with when I arrived. I wasn't expecting there to be quite so much life when I signed up yeah. for a summer yeah. in the Arctic. Um, I kind of thought it would be a lot harsher. Mm-hmm. And it is still harsh, but everything here is so well adapted. But there are so many more flowers yeah. and yeah. therefore so many more bees yeah. than I ever <laughs> would have realised. Yeah, how, how important are the bees to life up here? Um, I think they're pretty important. Obviously, are pollinators, they're very important anyway in just the global scale to like continuing flower species crop species um but here we don't i think there are other bees so we see some honeybees occasionally but bumblebees dominate so they are really important um, as pollinators on the mountain okay and that is my cue to head back to the research station because up next i am going to be having a skype chat with richard gill from imperial college london he is ryan and lottie's supervisor back in the uk And he's the one who has headed up the wider project that these two are a part of and planned the whole long-term studies around Arctic bee communities up here. Now, Rich, there's a whole set of freezers up here that have your name on it and they are full of um, bits of bee legs, tarsi clippings and lots of pollen samples. Now, when I was out with Brian and Lottie, we did collect a pollen sample or two. What is it that you're going to be actually using those for? Yeah, so... Two main samples that we we collect off the bee, and that's the the, the pollen loads. So this is the the pollen packet that they have on their legs, mm. and they collect all that pollen so they can take it back to their colony and and feed the larvae. But by taking just one of those pollen packages from the leg, um, we can then actually take that back to the lab, and we can start to ground truth some of our observations of seeing the bees on the plants that they're visiting, mm. and it kind of gives us an insight into um, the different plant species that they might be visiting during that foraging bout uh, that they're undertaking. Um, and so what we can do is take that pollen back and we can either stick it under a microscope or we can actually um, 
basically DNA barcode it so we can um, sequence the DNA from the pollen and then we can then match that up with a library, a DNA library, and actually understand what plants they've been going to by using this molecular approach, uh, which is highly accurate. It doesn't tell us exactly how many times they've been going to these different plants, but it does tell us the diversity of different plants they've been going to. And of course, that's really important for us to understand that plant pollinator network and how that plant pollinator network is changing over time and space. So it gives you a much truer picture of what they're doing when you can't see them. Yeah. Um, I mean, and sort of microscopy, it can be very, very time consuming. Uh, but with the costs tumbling now, um, actually, you can do this very, very quickly. We have lots of bioinformatic pipelines. So that's where we can just run certain scripts that can then do this very quickly and highlight to us based on DNA what they've been going to. You can't really argue against um, a unique sequence of DNA. <laughs> no, <you can't. laughs> and then our second samples is we, we collect um, a tiny little tarsal clipping. It's almost like taking a, a nail clipping um, from ourselves. But of course, there's DNA in that. And we can sequence at a certain loci, so a certain area in the genome. And then we, again, we can match that to a library. And that can give us an idea or at least uh, confirm that the species we think it is really is that species. And on top of that, it gives us a unique um, sequence. And that sequence can vary sometimes between individuals. And we can then use that variation to get an idea of how vari variable the population is. So we can look at how diverse that population is. Ah. Typically, the more diverse, the more healthy the population is. And we can start to make estimations about the population size based on that DNA sequence or the DNA sequences across multiple individuals. And so if we're doing a long-term study and we're seeing changes in that population, we can then um, confirm that in the DNA as well and see whether we're seeing a reduction or an increase in diversity across time. Brilliant. So nobody's allowed to touch your freezers here in the lab. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think many people are quite aware that, you know, bees are in decline. And I think typically things like pesticides and like land use change are what people assume are the big kind of problems, the big threats for bees at the moment. How do you think that climate change kind of measures up as another threat to, to our bee communities? I think it has the potential to be to be a very big impact. Um, I think the question at the moment is, is exactly how mechanistically it's affecting uh, insect pollinator populations. At the moment, to date, we've seen that certain insect pollinator uh, communities or populations like the bumblebees, we've seen things like range contractions and certain ranges uh, move either north or south. Um, and we do know that some of the species of bumblebees aren't doing so well. Uh, the issue with that is that it's kind of correlative data. So it's giving us an indication that climate change is having an effect. But we're not mm -hmm. sure exactly how or why. And we're also a little bit unsure as to how climate change is interacting with all the other stresses that insect pollinators have to deal with. Mm. Um, so one example is things like agricultural land use change and pesticide exposure. The really great thing about going up to the, the Arctic and working in Nabisco is that we have quite limited human interference on those um, on. The particular mountain and the particular plots that we're, we're studying. 
So the great thing about that is we can start to actually get an idea about how climate change just itself is having an effect without having to necessarily dissect and distinguish between all those other interacting factors. And I think doing that gives us a better idea of the kind of effect size that climate change can be having. And as well with um, kind of climate change reportedly happening maybe two, even sometimes three times the rate up here in the Arctic than it is in some of the other parts of the world. Again, is that does that make the, the kind of the site that we're using here much more attractive because you can kind of get this sort of window into the future of the rate of change that might happen elsewhere? Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to it can be complicated. So um, the fact that climate change is happening at such a rapid rate up there you might expect to see responses that are a little bit more extreme. Uh, and so we can then detect those and it still gives us that insight. But of course, it's an extreme environment itself. You have a very small uh, seasonal window, let's say, of just a few months in the summer uh, where it's warm enough for the bees and the, and the flowers to come out. Um, but that also means that these bees necessarily have to deal with quite large uh, changes in temperature both just within a day as well as throughout the season so there's always a possibility that they're actually you know they can deal with these extreme conditions better than maybe other insect pollinators that you find in more temperate or even um, kind of equatorial um, uh, conditions or tropical conditions so um, I think it's quite interesting to to understand that and we can certainly get insights into looking at bee species that are very very well adapted to those climates versus other bee species that we find over a much larger range that seem to be more generalist and so we can kind of uh, compare both generalist and specialist species and look at how they're responding. And in your expert opinion uh, is there hope for our bees? Yeah I think there is yeah um, I think we have to take a certain amount of responsibility onto our shoulders. And I think the only way of doing that is to make evidence-based decision-making. So I would argue that research that many of the academics are doing is really valuable and contributing to understanding of how insect pollinators are doing. And I think there's obviously been a lot of interest in recent years on that. And so, yes, I think there is hope, um, but we have to be quite proactive about doing it. I think we're doing a lot of good work that is highlighting and revealing what are the factors that are threatening them. Um, I think a bit more research needs to go in into understanding how we can now employ certain mitigation strategies to try and protect some of the pollinators that we have. I mean, they're extremely important. They provide not only pollination for our wildflowers, which is very, very important for the health of our wild ecosystems, but mm they also contribute a huge amount to, to agricultural crop um, pollination. And that's worth in the billions of uh, dollars per year uh, across the globe. So we can't afford to lose them. Um, and I don't think we can rely just on um, having honeybee hives and uh, transporting those around the globe. We also have to rely very, very heavily on our wild pollinators. And that's where our research on bumblebees comes in. And that's it for this episode of Field Notes. Thanks very much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I particularly love the opportunity to run around a mountain chasing bees and to learn a little bit more about the importance of our pollinators and the threats that they might be facing uh, with our changing climate. 
Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you can stay tuned and keep up to date with all the rest of the episodes that are going to be coming your way for the rest of the summer. If you want to get in touch with myself or the Climate Impacts Research Centre, you can tweet me at Emma Rizian or at Arctic Cirque. You can also check the show notes for other ways to get in touch. And I will see you in the next episode. Thank you.